it's been requested that American pastors in showing our solidarity with our Canadian brothers would use today, January 16th, 2022, to preach what is in their nation an illegal sermon on the subject of biblical sexual morality. The Canadian government is pretty much on its way toward outlawing the preaching of any kind of life-transforming gospel. In all likelihood, our, our condition here in the United States is probably not far behind them. It was scheduled for us to begin chapter 25 of our confession this evening on the topic of marriage, and so I figured to sort of dovetail these two things together, I would preach a sermon or give a message, I don't know how you want to describe this, uh, on that topic of biblical sexual morality. Now the irony is uh, the snow has caused us to cancel our services, and so this is a recorded sermon. I'm in my office at home. I am preaching at a computer. My family is in the other room, and you might hear them from time to time. But I still thought it would be beneficial, uh, maybe useful at least to have this information documented on this date, as I do know that there will be many other pastors in the U.S. and in Canada preaching on this subject on this date. And so this will be my uh, contribution to the subject I don't think I'm going to say anything that uh, no one else is saying. Um, although I, I I do think I have maybe maybe um, some bees in my bonnet with regard to this topic that might not be buzzing so loudly in the bonnets of others, and so we'll we'll uh, we'll get there as we walk through this subject. I've I've broken this message up into four points. Uh, God's design, man's deviation, God's decree, and then gospel deliverance. Uh, God does have a design for biblical sexual morality. Man has deviated from that design. These deviations are contrary to God's law. And through the gospel, people guilty of sexual sins can be set free and redeemed. That's that's the point. That is the message that is is illegal in Canada. So then, point number one: God's design. <clears throat> God's design. Any discussion on biblical sexual morality must begin at the beginning, and that is with God. It's not enough for us as Christians to say, "Well, we don't like your lifestyle." It's not enough for us to say, well, that, that particular lifestyle really, really doesn't um, lead to human flourishing. It's not enough for us to say, this is the way that we've always done it, and now you're choosing a different pathway, and therefore we don't like it. None of those things are sufficient to argue uh, on the, uh, the cultural stage of, uh, of any generation. As Christians, ultimately, the burden of proof in these matters doesn't lie on our shoulders, especially when it comes to try to vindicate or validate any legitimate truth, because the Christian is a person who points people to God. A Christian is a person who is a recipient of a message, and a Christian preacher is a preacher of a message, not that he has created, but that he's received and he delivers it. And as Paul says, uh, it's God who has uh, made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. And we are ministers of reconciliation. We are uh, deliverers of a message given to us. The sufficiency to deliver it has been provided to us by God. And the reconciliation that we are proclaiming is provided by God. Uh, What we believe, we believe because God said it. And so we begin with God's design. Now, again, I'm, I'm dovetailing this into our study of the Baptist Confession of Faith. 
But this also helps to show that we are standing in the long line of Christian truth extending back to ancient times. Uh, we are standing uh, in solidarity with historic Christianity when we claim that God has a design for biblical sexual morality. And our confession proves this. In paragraph 1 of chapter 25, we read of the candidates for marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage, we see there, simply put, this is what Baptists have always believed, and we would be in line with the rest of our brothers. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Therefore, sexual morality, a moral sexual ethic or practice, can only take place within the confines of such a marriage as defined as a union of one man and one woman. And any sexual behavior outside of the parameters of that particular defined union, one man and one woman, anything outside of that is sexual immorality. The prefix I-M meaning not, the opposite of. It is not moral if there's any sexual behavior outside of a marriage as defined as being between one man and one woman. The candidates for a marriage are a man and a woman. Now, every person on the planet is either a man or a woman. To pursue marriage, each one would need to pair up with someone of the opposite gender. So here comes the application if you are explaining this to someone. Uh, if you're a man and you want to pursue marriage, what you're looking for is a woman. A woman. If you're a woman and you're pursuing marriage, what you're going to look for is a man. And when a man and a woman are joined together, it's called marriage. The candidates for biblical Christian marriage are one man and one woman. Now the second paragraph goes on to explain the reasons for marriage. And here we're given insight into why one man and one woman are necessary for a proper met, uh, marriage. Again, the Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and the preventing of uncleanness. Now, you see, when you see that word ordained in the Baptist Confession, what we're saying is that God has designed this. God created it. God instituted it. God sets its purposes, its parameters. He defines it. Marriage in any way departing from what God has designed, created, instituted, and purposed is not marriage. If a man wants to unite with a man, that's not marriage. If a man, or a woman, rather, wants to unite with a woman, that's not marriage. Marriage, as ordained, designed, created, instituted, purposed by God, is one man and one woman. Now, here are these purposes. You'll see why it has to be that way. First, mutual help. Mutual help. Because men and women are different, they are suited to help one another. A man can do things that a woman cannot do. A woman can do things that a man cannot do. And so therefore, they are a mutual help to each other. Second, the increase of mankind. The word that we use is procreation. One man and one woman can procreate. Marriage is intended for procreation. Therefore, you must have one man and one woman, no more, no less. These two people, when they come together sexually, can produce offspring. They can produce children. This is one of the purposes of marriage. Two men cannot do that. 
Two women cannot do that. Well, you, people say, well, what about uh, this surgery? Okay, you just added a surgeon. I said one man and one woman. Well, what about uh, in vitro fertilization? Well, you just added a doctor. I said one man and one woman. Biblical marriage is one man and one woman, no more, no less. And this serves to increase mankind. <coughs> Thirdly, the preventing of uncleanness. Now, uncleanness would be the broadest term that we could possibly use for sexual moral immorality of any kind of, uh, and all kinds. You see, if each man has his own wife and each wife has her own husband, well, that, that serves to squelch the unauthorized pursuit of physical pleasure outside of marriage that leads to uncleanness. Marriage, as ordained, designed, created, instituted, purposed by God uh, between one man and one woman, is the only legitimate arena in which sexual pleasures and desires are to be satisfied. It prevents uncleanness when a man and a woman come together in marriage. Now, having heard that, a sort of a summary of our uh, confessional statement, what Baptists have believed, what Christians believe, it is important for us to remember that our confession was not written to stand on its own. If you have a copy of our Confession of Faith that doesn't have Scripture references, uh, the, the re Scripture references actually had to be removed to produce your copy because the original Confession was not published without Scripture references. <coughs> in other words, the Confession itself in its publication admits that it does not stand on its own, but it stands on another foundation. That foundation is also our foundation, namely the very Word of God. These confessional formulations are merely summaries of what God's Word teaches. Now, before we consider the specific references that are given, it's important to restate what exactly it is we're quoting from. When a Christian says, well, here's what we confess, and here's why we confess it, and then they, they point to verses in the Bible or they hold up a, a leather-bound book of ancient words. The Christian does that because he believes something about the Bible. While the government might decide that the teachings of the Bible are a myth, a Christian believes the very opposite. You see, we believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. So we, we might point to a confession and someone could argue, well, well well, you're just pointing to the words of men. Well, the confession itself actually proves or, or, or gives proofs for its statements from the Bible. They point back to another book. Now, again, someone could argue, well, those are just the words of men. Well, as Christians, we, uh, we, we deny that claim outright. The Bible is not full of the words of men. The Bible is the very Word of God. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we point to the confession. The confession points to the Bible. The Bible is the very Word of God. Because the Bible and the truths express, expressly set down or necessarily contained in it are God's Word, they do not, nor can they ever become antiquated. God's Word stands Forever, no society will ever progress beyond what the Bible teaches on any issue, but specifically biblical sexual morality. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. They might try to ignore it. They might try to move past it. They might try to deny it. None of that has any bearing on the truthfulness of the Word of God. It remains forever. And that view of the Bible is not a novel view. We have not just concocted this because we need somewhere to point in the 21st century to defend our claims. 
Again, our own confession affirms that this is what Christians have always believed. Chapter 1, paragraph 1, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined. And all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentences we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. Into which Scripture, so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. This is the bottom line in determining any issue for faith or life. What does the Bible say? Why does that matter? Because the Bible is God's Word. The opinions of courts, councils, emperors, or kings, any time they are contrary to the Bible, they are utterly irrelevant. The Christian hears those types of statements as mindless babbling, childish stammering, completely insignificant. It does not matter what you're saying when it is contrary to God's Word. So then, we confess that God has a design for marriage and for sexual morality and that God's design is the only one that matters. We believe God has clearly explained His design in His Word, the Bible, and it alone is the final word on the matter. The canon of God's Word being completed, God's Word on the matter then has been stated, inscripturated, settled, codified as unchanging and unchangeable. So then the question is, what does it say? What does God's Word say about biblical sexual morality? Well, first, the Bible is clear that God created mankind to exist in two genders or sexes. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Notice, male and female. There are only two genders. Anyone who suggests otherwise is taking you for an absolute imbecile. They believe you are a moron. Everyone, everyone knows there are only two genders. And that's by God's design. That's the way God created it. Secondly, we see that the joining of these two genders or sexes into a union, that, that whole idea of marriage is designed by God. Genesis 2, 22-24. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man, God did. Then the man said, <coughs> This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, notice we have the narrative, and throughout the narrative, God is ordering the entire thing. And then we have this explanation from Moses, where he says, therefore, and Moses explains, a man shall leave his father and mother, etc. Marriage is designed by God, and, and it follows this pattern. Amen will hold fast to his wife, period. One man, one woman. Now, lest we fall into the trap of writing this ancient narrative off as mythological or poetic or something other than God's outbreathed words to be taken absolutely literally, Remember how Jesus himself spoke of this story in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, and said, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. You see, Christ himself points to this story as historical narrative. And Christ affirms that it was God who created man, that it was God who created man as male and female, and that it was God himself who actually spoke. When Moses wrote the words, Therefore a man shall leave. Have you not read that he who created them made them and said, therefore? It was God speaking through Moses. Why? Because Moses' words are the very words of God. Christ affirms that there are two and only two genders, that when they come together in this union called marriage, that is designed by God. This is the biblical order. We confess with Scripture with God the Holy Spirit, with Moses, with Jesus Christ our Lord, and with the Christian church of all times. Number one, God created man in two and only two genders. Number two, God created marriage as a union of one man and one woman for life. Nothing else is marriage. And number three, any suggestion of a thought or desire or activity of a sexual nature of any kind outside of this simple design is a crime against God. It is a sin. It is wickedness. It is uncleanness. Any suggestion of a thought, desire, activity of a sexual nature outside of this design is a crime against God. Number two, man's deviation. Having received such a clear, simple, satisfying ordinance from such a good, gracious, and all-wise God, we would expect that man would in gratitude and delight give himself completely and exclusively to this ordinance of marriage, right? It's uh, so perfect. But we know this is not the case. If we didn't have any historical information, all we'd have to do would be to look around at the world that we live in and we'd see that God's design has been completely cast off and trampled upon by the entire human race, including those who claim to be Christians. And this is where it gets messy. While many will give the impression that biblical sexual morality is really only important for the transsexuals and the sodomites, the reality is that there's probably not going to be a single transsexual or sodomite in any of the churches that are preaching on biblical sexual morality on January 16, 2022. That's more than likely the reality. The fact of the matter is, however, biblical sexual morality is really a much larger, larger category. Sexual immorality is much more broad than those obvious deviations in our culture. And so while we might get caught up in gay conversion therapy, we need to start thinking about how to convert the heterosexuals in our own congregations who are living in sexual immorality and sin. I think some would probably even argue that Christians abandoned this fight a long time ago because they haven't addressed the issues in their own pews. Man's diversion and deviation from biblical sexual morality did not begin with sodomy. It began at the fall. It all began with the entrance of sin into the world through the very first deviation from God's design for marriage. Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. We know from Scripture that Eve was deceived by the serpent, Adam, 
however, was not deceived. He willfully followed his wife into sin. And thus, sin entered the world. The very first deviation from God's design was not sodomy or transgenderism. It was a breakdown in the order of a husband being the head of his wife and the wife submitting to the headship of her husband. And there are very few pulpits who will take a Sunday and preach on that matter. But this is where it began. What was the very first reaction to this entrance of sin? More deviation from God's design. Genesis 3, 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We could call this mutual alienation from one another. Now we could compare this with chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. If we compare these two passages, we see that within the confines of God-ordained marriage, there was to be no shame of nakedness, no mutual alienation from one another. But now because of sinned entrance, their very first reaction is manifested in a deviation from God's design for sexual morality by hiding from one another, a husband and a wife, one man and one woman in a lifelong union and yet they're hiding from each other because they're ashamed. In Genesis chapter 4, we see bigamy enters the picture. 4.19, Lamech takes two wives. In chapter 6, we see increased marital perversion as the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Interpretations of that passage abound, but I believe every one of them would agree that there is some sort of marital perversion taking place, contrary to the design of God. In Genesis 9, Ham, the father of Canaan, looks upon the nakedness of his father, more lewdness, that's also sexual immorality, we see the actual introduction of sodomy in Genesis 19 where the men of Sodom, young and old, and all the people to the last man surround the house of Lot and they cry out for Lot to bring out his sons that they might rape them. It's because all sodomy is that. It's abuse. It's rape. We compare that with Ezekiel 16.50 which it says that they were haughty and did an abomination and Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Quoting that verse, James Durham, an old Scottish Puritan, says, speaking of the Sodomites, he calls them those miscreants whom God set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire when He rained, as it were, something from hell out of heaven on them, burning them quick and frying them in a manner to death in their own skins because of the lusts wherewith they burned. God fried the sodomites in their own flesh because it was in their own flesh that these passions had manifested themselves. We see incest in Genesis 19.36. The daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Even within the households of the godly, Genesis 29.30, Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Bigamy rips that family apart. In Genesis 34, we see Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, seizing Dinah, the daughter of Leah, raping her because of his raging passions. He couldn't control himself. In Genesis 35, Reuben lays with Bilhah, his father's concubine. In Genesis 38, we see the, the episode between Judah and Tamar as she 
covets the benefits of marriage and offspring outside of its confines. In Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife casts her eyes on Joseph and begs him to sleep with her, which he refers to as a great wickedness and a sin against God. Potiphar's wife seeking the pleasures of marriage outside of its confines. You see that by the time we get to the book, the end of the book of Genesis, and I haven't even been exhaustive, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, We've seen explicit narratives of almost every possible deviation from God's design for sexual morality and marriage. And it didn't begin with sodomy or transgenderism. It began with a husband and a wife in a lifelong union, a marriage. But the order had been cast off and abandoned. That's where it begins. And until we are ready to call men back to stand in the place of headship in their homes and lead their wives and their children spiritually in daily family worship, in studying and in the Word of God and in prayer and in singing and calling wives to submit to their husbands and to be workers at home, we have already given up the battle lines. Until we are ready to preach that sermon... We're already saying that the biblical order for sexual immorality really only matters when it gets icky and gross. Ecclesiastes 7.29, See this alone I have found that God made man upright and they have sought out many schemes. Isaiah 53.6, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. Sexual immorality pervades the entire race of humanity. In the book of Judges, Samson's lust for foreign women brings trouble to him and other people eventually leads to his death. In chapter 19, we have that horrid story of the Levite and his concubine. And again, like the men of Sodom, they're crying out for somebody to rape and abuse in 1 Samuel 1, sexual sins are at the very doorstep of the tabernacle as Eli's sons sleep with the women who work there. In 2 Samuel 11, David takes Bathsheba. In chapter 13, Amnon rapes his sister. In chapter 16, Absalom sleeps with his father's concubines. This is all in the household of David. In the first eight verses of 1 Kings chapter 11, we see that Solomon himself loved many foreign women, and they turned his heart away from God. In the Proverbs, chapter 5, verse 3, we see the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. What we learn there is that manners of speech, ways of talking, enter into the realm of sexual immorality. You see other texts of the, the, the use of the eyes and the nodding of the head and the way that people use their bodies just to communicate a message. Proverbs 5.8, Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. There we see that the places that you go fall into the category of deviations and sexual immorality. Willful proximity to sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Another one, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 to 24, listen to this. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. How do you stretch out your neck? Some have argued that they didn't really stretch out their necks. They just lowered the neckline of their clothing. Walked with outstretched necks. Glancing wantonly with their eyes. Mincing along as they go. Tinkling with their feet. The way they use the eyes. The way they use the feet in their walk. Therefore the Lord will strike them with a scab. The heads of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, 
the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the mirrors, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Ways of dress, manners of walking enter into the realm of deviation from God's design and thus are forms of sexual immorality. Listen to an old writer. His name was Tertullian as he describes the way women primp themselves up to go out in public. He says, drive away this bondage of busking from a free head. In vain do you labor to appear thus dressed, and in vain do you make use of the most expert frizzlers of hair. God commands you to be covered and veiled. I wish that I, a most miserable man, may be privileged to lift up my head, if it were but amongst the feet of the people of God in that blessed day of Christians' exulting gladness. Then will I see if you will arise out of your graves with that varnish and paint of white and red and with such a headdress, and if the angels will carry you up so adorned and painted to meet Christ in the clouds. What he's saying is, I can't wait until resurrection day and I'm going to look and see if you come out of the grave with all of that clown paint on your face to enter into God's presence. Of course, it's ironic and rhetorical. We know that you will not. And yet you do it anyway. Why? Why do women do this? To decorate themselves, to advertise themselves, to draw attention to themselves, to add to themselves something besides what God has given them to show their femininity. He goes on to say, talking about these things that they put on, these delights and toys must be shaken off with the softness and looseness whereof the virtue and valor of faith may be weakened. Moreover, I know not if these hands that are accustomed to be surrounded with rings and bracelets or such other ornaments will endure to be benumbed and stupefied with the hardness of a chain. In other words, I can't imagine those hands that have spent their lives clinkling and tinkling with with all of these ornaments, bracelets, and rings, will be able to endure a chain. I know not if the leg, after the use of such fine hose garters, will suffer itself to be straightened and pinched into fetters or a pair of stocks. I am afraid that the neck, accustomed to chains of pearls and emeralds, will hardly admit of the two-handed sword. He's talking about persecution and suffering. Therefore, O blessed women, let us meditate and dwell on the thoughts of hardships, and we shall not feel it. Let us relinquish and abandon these delicacies and frolics, and we shall not desire them. Let us stand ready armed to encounter all violent assaults having nothing which we will be afraid to forego and part with. These, these are the stays and ropes of the anchor of our hope. Let your eyes be painted with shamefacedness and quietness of spirit. Gifts of grace. Fasten in your ears the word of God and tying about your necks the yoke of Christ. Subject your head to your husbands, and so shall you be abundantly adorned and comely. Let your hands be exercised with wool. Let your feet keep at home and be fixed in the house, and they will please much more than if they were all in gold. Clothe yourselves with the silk of goodness and virtue, with the fine linen of holiness, with the royal purple of chastity, and being after this fashion painted and adorned, you will have God to be your lover." 
to put this in modern terms, let's think of our brothers and sisters around the world suffering persecution. Brothers and sisters in Afghanistan fleeing for their lives. Can you imagine those women stopping in the morning to put on their ornaments and their bracelets and their pearls and their garters and to paint their faces? Of course not. Of course not because the hour of trial has come. God never intended women or men to be decorated like a Christmas tree. That's what he's saying. That's what Isaiah was saying. And Isaiah told the women of his day, God's going to rip that stuff off of you. When we come to the New Testament, John the Baptist rebukes Herod for taking his brother's wife, Christ, says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, looks of lust are adultery. Sexual deviation from God's standard of biblical sexual morality. In Matthew 19, 4-6, we learn that divorce is sexual deviation. Divorce is sexual immorality. It is contrary to God's design for marriage from the beginning it was not so. In the words of Paul in Romans 1, he speaks of lusts giving up their hearts to impurity in Romans 1, 26 and 27. Homosexuality and sodomy as mentioned again. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1, incest is condemned. He says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, he could have stopped there. But he goes on, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. It's bad enough that sexual immorality could be named amongst the people of God, but now we have an instance where a man is sleeping with his father's wife, which is incest. It's condemned. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, the sexually immoral adulterers and men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 and 3, we learn that to withhold your, yourself from your spouse unreasonably is sexual deviation. He says in verse 5, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 7, he refers to these desires within as burning with passion. And this is what it is in men. It's a burning with passion. A desire to satisfy lusts or to be the satisfaction for somebody else. To draw attention to yourself. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Verse 21 those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 5, 4-5, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talking nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Sexual humor, sexual joking, laughing at such things, singing about such things, watching such things on movies and television shows, mocking God's design, making a joke out of sodomy is sexual immorality. It is contrary to God's design for biblical sexual morality. And people who do that have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Control your own body. These people who think that they're living free and satisfying their lust, they're just showing they're no better than animals. They can't even control themselves. But Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that people would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And in Hebrews 13, 4, he says that God is going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Peter tells his audience in 1 Peter 2, 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In 2 Peter 2, he describes false teachers as those who have eyes full of adultery 
In Revelation 2, there's a woman who's seducing the servants of Christ and teaching them to practice sexual immorality. And to cap it all off, in Revelation 17, the entire city of man that is at enmity with God and His people is referred to as the great harlot Babylon. In other words, enmity with God is described in terms of sexual deviation. Now this is a small sampling and it's really only from Scripture. But we see that this is the complete rejection of God's design by the entire human race. The problem is not that God created mankind to be sexual beings. The problem is not that God has given us a design that's just so difficult to follow we can't do it. The problem is twofold. We are lured and enticed by our own burning passions and lust for self-gratification, and we don't have the power to even squelch it or, or hide it anymore. But secondly, we think that we're God and that nothing should stand in the way of our self-worship because I'm God, and who are you to tell me what I can do with my temple, my worship? That's our problem. As mankind has multiplied, we've only multiplied our deviations. So that now, we can, we've come to a point where things that were once clearly denounced as unnatural are now being presented as if they were natural and they expect us to believe or to accept them and, and celebrate them as natural. How could that possibly be? Well, what you do is you destroy the very concept of nature. The word nature comes from the Latin word natus. We've all heard words like prenatal, neonatal, nativity, scene. They all stem from the same root word natus. It refers to birth, that which comes from birth. This word is used in the Latin Vulgate of 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, when Paul says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man, man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Paul the Apostle believed that nature... That is, the way that somebody comes out of his mother's womb or her mother's womb teaches us something about that person. Well, this is what our present world is attacking. They're chopping at the roots of society itself by trying to destroy the very concept of nature or birth order. So now your birth gender can be different from your actual gender. And the idea, of course, is that if there's no concept of nature, then there's no assumed or expected course of life. There's no right and no wrong. A fish by nature swims in the water, but if there is no nature, then it's absolutely appropriate and ought to be expected and celebrated to just bring him on out of the water and watch him do flip-flops on the pavement. It's utter insanity. And so now we've come not only to the LGBTQQ, Q, either meaning queer or sometimes questioning, they can't even figure out what their own Q stands for, to now LGBTQQIA, in which we learn about transgender, odd gender, gender queer, bigender, gender variant, and many, if not most of these, are defined by romantic love or sexual attraction. In other words, lust, passion, wanton cravings. What do I want to do? It's all centered around a person's ability to satisfy their own lusts without accountability. And that's their thinking. If I can get rid of this concept of nature, which assumes a creator and a designer, then I can please myself with no presently acknowledged cultural accountability or shame. Now, it's not acknowledged out loud. They're not shamed out loud. It's behind closed doors that they talk about men who have to wear diapers from sodomy and all of the diseases and things that happen and the, the, the pervasive death that ravages this so-called community. But publicly, it's, it's celebrated. We must accept it. Their whole worldview is we must dethrone God so that I can cover my shame and not feel it. And that brings us to the third heading, God's decree. What does God say about all this? Has He said anything? 
The answer is yes. God has spoken. His design and order in creation is utterly sufficient to stop the mouths of every sexual deviant and pervert because they all know by nature that they're wicked. They know it. Paul, when he addresses the catalog of sins in Romans 1, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know it. And yet still, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Out loud, on television and movies and songs, they say we must celebrate it, we must celebrate it, we must celebrate it. And all of it is, because it is, it is meant to drown out their guilty consciences that plague them behind closed doors and in the dark of their own minds because they know that they are vile, wicked miscreants and they will be held accountable to God. They know it. They know God's righteous decree. Every one of these sexual sins, all the way back to whether or not men you're leading your households or wives you're submitting to your husbands, all of it goes back to Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Etched by the, the very finger of the living God on tablets of stone, you shall not commit adultery. The positive of that would be you shall bring yourself into glad, willful, worshipful submission to God's design in marriage and that is one man and one woman for life and forever. Now that commandment, we know it goes further because that's what's opened up and expanded in the law. It covers many sexual sins. You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion, Leviticus 18.23. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, Leviticus 18.22. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover his nakedness, Leviticus 18.6. That's incest. Falling within this category, as we've already seen, are sins against the covenantal bond. In Proverbs 2.17, marriage is called the covenant of God. Not because we in initiate a covenant with God, but because we in marriage make a covenant to another human being before God, and we make a vow to that person and a vow to God to remain in that marriage until our dying breath. <coughs> but there are sins against this covenant. You might have two married people who engage in, in some way with somebody who's not their spouse. You might have a married man with a single woman. You might have a married woman with a single man. You might have a man with two wives. You might have a man with many wives and concubines. There's also fornication, which would be immorality between unmarried people. If it's forced, it's rape. If it's ongoing fornication, that falls into the category of whoredom. If it's just with one partner, someone says, well, I, I've just chosen one partner to engage in all these things and to pretend like I'm married to them outside of the bonds of marriage. We're not actually married. We're just going to pretend that we're married, but I'm still devoted to this one. You, you are abusing and despising God's design. You're saying, I've got a better idea than you, God. Again, you are dethroning God to cover your shame. If it's fornication with multiple partners, that falls back into prostitution and harlotry. Then there's sexual deviations that are between married people. Did you know that one man and one woman in a covenant union together with one another can actually commit sexual immorality without reaching outside of the bonds of their union? Following James Durham and his outline of the, the seventh commandment, he says this can happen by starting off your marriage on the wrong foot by wooing each other using carnal means. This can happen if you marry someone of a different faith that's contrary to God's design. It's uncleanness. It's sexual immorality. 
This could happen if somebody marries another person for te temporal benefits, for money, or for fame, or for carnal lusts and pleasure. Married couples deviate from God's design when they're not enjoying and honoring one another. This could happen if you're withdrawing or secluding yourself from your spouse. Or the opposite extreme would be if you're being excessive in your sexual lusts. I assume this falls primarily on the shoulders of men who essentially treat their wives like a prostitute, pretending that she's only there for sexual satisfaction. Regardless of the way she feels about it or what she wants or what she desires, he believes that she is there to satisfy him, and he'll use passages like 1 Corinthians 7 to guilt her into doing things that she doesn't want to do. Durham says, quote, This inordinateness may begin or may be in respect of frequency, unseasonableness, or carnal in the manner. And I'll leave that to be opened up in your own mind, but I have heard people who've used the passage in Hebrews when it's stated as a command or, or as a, 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 a description, rather. The marriage bed is undefiled. They use that as a justification to say, in my bedroom, anything goes. Because we're married, one woman, one man, one union for life, in our bedroom, whatever we want to do is our business. In other words, they shut the door out and they say, God, you don't come in here. We can live however we want to in here. When God says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, you don't have that freedom at the table to do as you please, let alone when you're taking somebody else and using them to gratify your selfish lusts. Deviations can also be committed alone. Deeds done in darkness, deeds of the imagination, whether you are awake or whether you are asleep. Evidences of our sinful imaginations. We've already seen sins of the heart, lusts, passions, burnings. In this category would also be looking at things, whether they be pictures, movies, listening to things, music, conversations with obscene subject matter, touching, embracing, kissing people outside of the bounds of marriage, your gestures, your postures, uh, sensual self-carriage or walking in a way as to be seductive. All of these things forbidden and there are more by the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And all of those prohibitions from God's law find their positive fulfillment in that one statement from our confession, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. The opposite, you shall not commit adultery. God has spoken. This is what God says about deviations from His design. That brings us lastly to the fourth heading, gospel deliverance. Gospel deliverance. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to reconcile a estranged, sinful man back to himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, in our sin, and this includes sexual sins, we are by nature slaves to various lusts and passions. Titus 3.3, 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Ephesians 2.3, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. We are slaves to our lust, and we cannot use this as an excuse. It would be like the drunkard, using his drunkenness as the, as the excuse for why he crashed his car. It's not an excuse. Your wickedness is not an excuse for your wickedness. It's spiritual slavery. It's a bondage of the soul, which eventually brings forth fruit in our flesh. And these sins cut us off from God so that we can have no benevolent dealings with God at all. In our sins, we stand condemned by God's law. That decree we just heard of, we're condemned and the gospel is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to set us free from that bondage. Sexual sins often feel like bondage, or, or they often feel like freedom, but they're bondage. The sexual deviant is a slave 
He's no better off than an animal. Christ came to set us free from that. He came into the world and satisfied the legal demands of God's law at His life and death. He lived a perfectly pure life. He suffered under the wrath of God in His death. And now He sends forth His Spirit to any and all who would believe and trust in Him for salvation to change them. And that begins with regeneration, where the Holy Spirit comes and gives the believer an entirely new spiritual nature which will begin to bring forth fruit unto righteousness even in the physical body. Titus 3.3 again, We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We used to be like that, but now we're like this because God saved us. God regenerated us. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we were slaves. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace through faith. And we come down to verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We used to live like that, but God saved us, and now we live like this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed." You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Again, we used to be like this. You were once like this, but now you're different. You've been changed. God changes people. You who are listening, you know of all of the sexual deviations and perversions. There are people listening to this that they hope and pray that no one ever finds out about the things they've done behind closed doors. And yet God saved you, and He changed you, and you're different because of what God has done in Christ and by the power of His Holy Spirit. There is no kind of sin that Christ did not pay for. There's no kind of person the Spirit of God cannot change. There's no extent of evil to which a person can go where they're outside of the loving reach of God, our Savior. If you will confess your sexual deviations and abominations to God and seek repentance at His hand, He will mercifully pardon all of those crimes and He will set you free from that bondage. He'll change your attractions. He'll change your thoughts. He'll change your imaginations. And anybody who says God can't change their attractions has never been saved. They need to be born again too. There is no temptation of a sexual nature for which God has not provided a way of escape. And the chief and most practical way of escape is found in God's perfect design for sexual morality, which is one man and one woman for life. Outside of that, there is no life. There's only death. But Jesus Christ came that we would have life and that we would have it abundantly. This is a biblical view of sexual morality. Any deviation from God's design and God's law is sin. Any sin can be pardoned through Christ. Any person who comes to Christ for pardon also receives Christ for newness of life, and he will be changed. Any person living according to sexual deviations and perversions of any kind should run to Christ. Any person who remains in their sexual sins will suffer away from the face of God forever in eternal hell. As Christians, we only have one gospel, and it is the life-transforming kind. Any council, any government, any emperor or edict that is handed down that prohibits a message 
which promises to take sinners who are in the very depths of evil, fill them with the Spirit of God, cause them to walk in His statutes and obey His commandments in a way completely opposite of their former sins. Anyone who prohibits that message is prohibiting the biblical gospel. And when the gospel becomes outlawed, gospel preachers will and must become outlaws. We only have one gospel. If it can change me, and if it can change you, it can change others. And so I trust God will give us the strength that should the day come that we have to proclaim this message and face fines and persecution or even death for proclaiming a life-transforming gospel, that we will not be found decorating ourselves with the pleasures and lusts and cares of this world, but we will be found ready and that God will give us the strength to fight that battle.